Baptist Catechism number 24 asks, Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? Listen now to the answer. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continueth to be God and man, in two distinct natures and one person forever. We'll read from Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This now the reading of God's most holy word. May He bless the preaching of it this afternoon. You will probably remember that after a string of questions and answers having to do with the bad news concerning the sin and misery that all of humanity was plunged into by Adam's first sin, we then encountered good news. Question 23 of our catechism asks, Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? We had heard all about our sin and misery before this. Question 23 asks, did God leave us there in that state of sin and misery? The good news is this. God, having out of His mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of this estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. That's good news. Salvation has been made available. Salvation has been provided by God because of His grace out of His mere good pleasure. To redeem is to rescue. That is what it means to redeem. To redeem is to rescue. To redeem is to purchase something back. To redeem is to regain the possession of a thing that was lost. So if you lost something, if someone took it from you or it fell into their hands, to redeem is to go and get it and to bring it back. Uh, that, it, that is what it is to redeem. And our catechism rightly teaches that God has provided a Redeemer for us. That is to say, a Savior. God has provided a Savior for fallen humanity. God, by His grace, out of His mere good pleasure, did not leave mankind to perish. Which He would have been right to do, by the way. But He determined to deliver some out of their estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. The obvious question now is this, who is the Redeemer? We've learned that God has determined to provide a Redeemer. Well, well, who is He? Who is this Redeemer? And that is what our catechism now asks. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The answer that is given first identifies the Redeemer by simply naming Him. By simply naming Him. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. That is the most straightforward answer to the question, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. The word only 
in this answer is very important. It reminds us of what the Scriptures so clearly teach. There are not many redeemers, many saviors, or many who are able to reconcile us to God. There's only one. How many redeemers are there? Are there different, are there different ways for us to be saved? Are there different saviors? No, the Scriptures are clear. There is only one redeemer, only one savior. This is what Paul says so clearly in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God, Paul says... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, the word redeemer is not found here. Instead, Paul refers to Christ as the mediator. But the the concept is is very similar. A mediator is a go-between. A mediator is, is one that we go through to get to another. And there is one God, and then there is fallen humanity. How do we... How do we get to the one God? How do we come to have a right relationship with Him by going through the only mediator, the one mediator that God has provided, Christ the Lord? And Jesus Himself taught this when He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. It's a very clear statement concerning the exclusivity of Christ. He is the only Savior. He's the only path to God the Father. He's the only Redeemer. Is Jesus the Redeemer of the whole world then? Is Jesus the Redeemer of the whole world then? Well, yes, in a sense, He is. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Indeed, it is true that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the Redeemer of the whole world, not in that it was God's intent that the whole world, that is to say every person without exception, be actually redeemed or saved by Him, but in the sense that Jesus did not come to redeem Jews only, but people from every tribe tongue, and nation. So do you see that there is a sense in which Jesus is the Redeemer of the whole world? He is the Savior of all people. We do not have one Redeemer for the Jews, and then another Redeemer for the Africans, and then another Redeemer for Europeans, or something like that. There is one Redeemer, one Mediator between God and man, through whom all men must come. He is the Redeemer of the whole world. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the meaning of those words. God's intention is to save a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And how will they be saved? In no other way except through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. Why then does our catechism say that Christ Jesus is the only Redeemer of God's elect. Why is it stressed here that Christ is the Redeemer of God's elect? Well, our catechism teaches this because this is what the Scriptures teach. God sent the Son not to save every person without exception, but to atone for the sins of many from every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is the doctrine of predestination or election, which was introduced to you in the previous sermon. This is also the doctrine of limited atonement, or better yet, particular redemption. Who did Christ come to redeem? Specifically, who did He come to redeem? Who did He come to save? Whose sins did He come to die for? What was the Father's will for Him in this regard? 
Answer, Christ came to shed his blood, not for all, but for many. You may see Matthew 26, 18 about that. He came to lay his life down for the sheep. That is John 10, 15. He came to die for the church, namely his bride. You can see Ephesians 5, 25 about that. Christ came to do the Father's will for him, which was to which was to save for all eternity those given to him by the Father before the foundation of the world. John 17 reveals this truth most clearly. So to speak with precision, Christ is the Redeemer of God's elect. God's intention for him, God's mission for him was to come and to pay for the sins of those given to him by the Father in eternity. This doctrine of predestination or election, along with the doctrine of limited atonement, or better yet, particular redemption, is very clearly taught in the pages of Holy Scripture. And no, there is no contradiction between those passages that speak of particular redemption and those passages that speak of God loving the world or sending the Son for all the world, provided that these passages are interpreted properly. So our catechism is very right to name the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Redeemer of God's elect. This is a very accurate way of speaking. After this, our catechism tells us more about who Jesus the Christ, or Messiah, was and is. The answer continues. After the the Redeemer is named, we're told more about who He is. Who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was, and continueth to be God and man, in two distinct natures, and one person forever. Now there is a whole bunch of very important doctrine crammed into this one line here. Here we learn about the incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnation. Here the doctrine of the incarnation is briefly stated. Who was Jesus Christ? That is the question. Who was He? He was and is. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. When our catechism says that the eternal Son of God became man, it does not mean that the Son was changed into man, but that He took upon Himself a true human nature. Do you see the difference? If we consider the eternal Son of God, are we to imagine that at the Incarnation, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, changed into something new? Is that what is meant by He became man? He was changed from God into man? Uh, Certainly not. That would be a terrible mistake to make. God cannot become anything if if by become we mean was changed into, for God cannot change. Did you know it's impossible for God to change? Uh, We might say in an imprecise way, nothing is impossible for God. Well, in fact, there are things that are impossible for Him. The Scriptures say so. Did you know that God cannot lie? He cannot lie. God cannot do any evil. He is not tempted by evil. He tempts no one. He cannot do these things. That would be a contradiction of His eternal nature. And one other thing that God cannot do is change. He cannot change. Did you know it's impossible for God to learn anything? (laughs) You say, that's weird to think about. It is weird to think about, but it's true. He's not a creature like us. He doesn't change. He doesn't grow bigger. He doesn't grow stronger. Um, 
how could, he, how could a God who is all-powerful grow stronger? He cannot. He's perfect as it pertains to his strength. How could a God who is all-knowing learn anything? He cannot. He's all-knowing. God cannot change. It would be impossible for the eternal Son of God to become man in the sense of changing into man as if he went through a process of metamorphosis. You see, he cannot do it. So whatever we think about the incarnation, we cannot think that God was changed into man. No, instead he took upon himself a human nature without experiencing change in the divine nature at all. Are you with me? A very important truth, a difficult truth, a mysterious truth, but a very important one. We must guard against this error, and our catechism does a beautiful job at it in a very short space. All of this is beautifully and clearly stated in the Scriptures, especially in John 1 and Colossians 2. And all of this is clarified with these words, And so was, and continueth to be God and man, in two distinct natures and one person forever. If you want to learn how to speak with precision about Christ and about the Incarnation, just memorize this answer. You'll do well for yourselves if you just memorize this answer. Because the language here is precise and it's built upon the history of the church and careful articulations of this doctrine throughout the history of the church. Christ so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. When the Son of God became incarnate, He did not cease to be fully and truly God. And when the Son became incarnate, we must also confess that He did really take upon Himself true humanity. Christ was really and truly and fully divine. Christ was really and truly and fully human. Jesus Christ, in other words, was not something less than fully divine in His divinity, nor was He something more than human in His humanity. In Him, in the one person of Jesus Christ, there were united two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, and these two natures were kept distinct. They weren't mixed up with one another so as to become some third thing. It's very important to understand. The divine nature and the human nature were kept distinct. Distinct. That is what our catechism teaches, and it is right. They were not mixed together so as to become some third thing, something less than truly God and something more than truly human. These two natures were united in the one person of Jesus Christ without mixture, without mixture. So then in Christ, there were united two natures. These two natures were not mixed. But we must also say that Christ was not two persons, As it pertains to his personhood, he is one, for his personhood was derived from his divinity. And so Christ is, even now, and will be for all eternity. You're a person, are you not? You're one person. How many natures do you have? One nature, a human nature. But you are one person. And so it was with Christ. He was and is one person. He was not two people, two persons, trapped in one body. One person. And where did his personhood come from? Not the human nature, but the divine. So that it could truly be said that he is God with us. Very important theology here, packed into a very short little tiny phrase. Thanks be to God for this. The doctrine of the incarnation is mysterious. It is difficult to comprehend. But it is important for us to confess. For it is the teaching of Holy Scripture And let me conclude this little sermon by asking, why the Incarnation? Why this strange and mysterious doctrine of the Incarnation? Why was it necessary for the Redeemer of God's elect to be both God and man? 
Why was it necessary for the Redeemer of God's elect to be both God and man? The answer is rather simple. Humanity had to be redeemed by a true human. Humanity had to be redeemed by a true human. Where the first Adam failed, a second Adam had to succeed. But there is a problem with this. All of humanity was plunged into sin and ruin by the first Adam, so that none who descended from him were capable of saving the rest. Do you see how this works? In order for humanity to be redeemed, a human had to come and do it, to live in obedience to God's law, to, to, to suffer in, in the place of others as a human, etc. This had to be done by a human, but the problem is that none of Adam's seed, none of Adam's seed would be capable of accomplishing the salvation on behalf of others because they themselves were born into sin. We've already learned this. None could be the Savior because all were in need of a Savior. And for this reason, the Redeemer of God's elect had to be God Himself. This is why the Son of God, who is called the Eternal Word of God in John 1, took on flesh by being born of a virgin. And having come into the world, not by the seed of Adam, but by the power of God's working, Christ the man did then live a sinless life, suffer, die the death of a sinner, rise a sin, not for himself only, but for all who were given to him by the Father in eternity. Our catechism, as I've mentioned before, has a way of stating really big and really important truths in a very succinct way, doesn't it? Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Thanks be to God. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your plan of salvation. And we thank you for how Christ Jesus the Lord came to accomplish it. We thank you uh, for the way that he suffered and died for us. We thank you for the way that you upheld him, O Lord, and raised him from the dead so that in him we have the victory. God, help us to understand these things. Help us to live according to these truths also, that we would live all the days of our life in the service of you, O God, and in the service of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.